Father, thank you so much for your word. And please help us today, Lord. Lord, as we meditate on these words together, Lord, I pray that you, by your spirit, would speak to us. Holy Spirit, come. Be with us, God. Lord, be with us in this place, Lord, so that your word is not just hitting, hitting our ears, God, in a way that, that has no impact on our lives, God, or on our hearts. But I pray, Lord, that your word would enter into our ears. And by the power of your spirit, God, we would be moved, God, moved to worship, moved to action. Please, Lord, come and be with us as we meditate together in your word. Lord, we need your help. And we're so thankful, God, that you give it. And that you give it so freely. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so as a way of a, sort of a review here of where we've been in Acts. As we've begun walking through the book of Acts together. By way of review, uh, Luke and Acts is sort of a two-volume set. Uh, written by written by Luke himself, so the Gospel of Luke, Volume 1, and that makes Acts, the book of Acts, Volume 2. And so in the first volume, uh, the Gospel of Luke, which we see that in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the first book, O Theophilus, that's the first book referring to the Gospel of Luke. And in that first volume, we saw Jesus come into the world to rescue sinners we saw him live an absolutely perfect life and glorious miracles and all the things that he did and uh, opening the eyes of the blind, raising the dead, everything he did to show that he really is the promised Christ. Uh, we see him die. We see him crucified in the place of sinners in the first volume where he actually goes to the cross and he takes the death that we were. He tasted death for us all. We were supposed to taste death and he tasted death. For us all, we see in that volume, volume one, that he rose from the dead, that he proved himself to be truly the son of God. He declared it to be so through the resurrection from the dead. He walks on earth again after he was crucified and buried into a tomb. That's volume one. But in Acts 1, 1, chapter one, verse one, it tells us that Jesus's work is ongoing because here's how Luke speaks about that first volume. It says in chapter 1, verse 1 of Luke, excuse me, of, of the book of Acts. It says that the gospel of Luke, that first book, was all that Jesus began to do and teach. All that Jesus began to do and teach. So this is the continued work of Christ. The continued doings and teachings of Christ is what we're going to see as we continue to walk through the book of Acts together. We're seeing the continued reign of King Jesus in the book of Acts. So the first volume left us with a few cliffhangers. Some pretty, uh, pretty important cliffhangers were left there in the gospel of Luke. Number one, we saw a mission given that has not yet been fulfilled. And really it's the, it's the real mission impossible that this gospel would go out of Jerusalem from this small band of insignificant people. And that this gospel would go out into all the earth. The kingdom of God would spread to the ends of the earth. Every people group, there'd be a people of Jesus and every people group on the planet. This is an impossible task, right? But this mission is given in the first volume, but not yet begun to be fulfilled. Second cliffhanger that's given us in the first volume is a promise is given that the Holy Spirit is going to descend in a powerful way. This was promised all the way through the Old Testament. It was promised by Jesus that the Holy Spirit's coming to come upon his people in a way that has never been seen before. And it's going to make the mission impossible, actually possible that the gospel would go out to the ends of the earth. So here we're left with the first volume, the gospel of Luke, with these cliffhangers. And then Acts chapter 1 kind of rehashes out, re, uh, revisits these two things. This mission that's been given and this promise of the Holy Spirit to fulfill this mission. These two are kind of recapped before us. And after that, we're going to see that as a foundation in Acts chapter 1 for the Spirit of God being poured out in Acts 2. And the mission being extended to the ends of the earth throughout the rest of of the book of Acts. And so you get Acts chapter 1 verse 1 through 5. Which is what Dustin taught through last week along with an overview. And Acts 1 
verse 1 through 5, it gives us insight into that 40-day period. So Jesus dies for sinners. He rises from the dead. And between that time and the time that he ascends on high was a 40-day period. And during that 40-day period, he reveals himself. He actually shows himself to his disciples, risen from the dead, proof that he is who he said that he was. And then also he teaches them things about the kingdom of God. It's what it says in Acts 1 verse 3. He begins to teach them about the kingdom of God. Now in that teaching about the kingdom of God, we see in verse 4 and 5 that there's a special emphasis that's given on, on wait in Jerusalem. So to his disciples, to his apostles, wait in Jerusalem because you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So wait there until you're baptized with the Holy Spirit for the sake of the things that I've called you to do. So that's that 40 day period in Acts chapter 1 verse 1 through 5. And so then you come to the passage we're in today. Verses 6 through 11 of Acts chapter 1. So just as by way of an overview here. What we have in verses 6 through 11 is insight into that last day of that 40 day period. So the 40 day period before he ascends on high. The last day. We get, we get a glimpse into the last day of that 40 day period. Period. So let's read this together in Acts chapter 1, verse 6 through 11. Look at it. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, Two men stood by them in white robes and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So quick summary here. So in verse six, we see the disciples last day of that 40 days. And in verse six, we see a question is asked to Jesus. In verse 7 and 8, Jesus answers that question. After he answers that question, in verse 9, we see him ascend on high, ascend to his throne, King Jesus. And in verse 10 and verse 11, we see angels show up as the disciples are gazing into heaven, looking at this one that just ascended into the clouds. As they're gazing, the angels show up and they pretty much in a roundabout way say, what are you looking at? Get busy. So this is Acts chapter 1. Verse 6 through 11. Now we're going to try to unpack this passage. But I want to warn you that this passage is packed with so... It's it's overwhelming amount of content here. Okay? You've got Christology, the study of Christ, His ascension. You've got pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. Who is He? What is this baptism of the Spirit that they're waiting on? You've got eschatology, the study of the end times. Times and seasons are for you. But listen, He's coming back the same way that He left. You've got missiology, the study of the Great Commission, of this this command that God has given us to make disciples of all the nations. And here we see this massive biblical theme laid out for us here of the kingdom of God. So what I'm telling you as a warning is there's a lot here. There's a whole lot here. In fact, I initially intended to teach more verses in the verses 6 through 11, but I just don't think it could be done in this amount of time. So lean in. We've got a lot of content here. Lean in and I want you to understand God's word and I want you to be moved by the truths that we see here in Acts 1 verse 6 through 11. So let's start. You can see this on your study guide with the kingdom of God question here. Okay, so there's a question concerning the kingdom of God in verses six through eight. And I want to explain it to you. So let's look at verse six through eight one more time. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So there's the question. Last day he's about to send Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Here comes the answer from Jesus. 
He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the father's fixing his own authority. But you will be you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, I used to think that this question was just a ridiculous question. It was unrelated. So here's Jesus talking about the outpouring of the spirit of God on his people. Here's Jesus. Talk, he's about to ascend on high. And they come up with this ridiculous, unrelated question about trying to date say it when he's coming back or something. And I used to think that way. OK, but here's the thing. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think I realize now that this is actually a legitimate question that they're asking. They ask this, this question, Lord. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And I'm telling you, that's a legitimate question. If you think about the context that's around that question, it helps you understand that that is a legit question. Okay, so first thing about the context, look at the immediate context. Chapter one, verse three. What was Jesus talking about during that 40 day time period? What was he teaching them? He was teaching them about the kingdom of God. Therefore, it makes sense that they would come with this kingdom of God question. Will you restore the kingdom at this time? Okay, so he's been teaching them about the kingdom of God. Second way to think about it, this whole book, the book of Acts, really has a framework around the kingdom of God itself. So think about this. Verse 3 tells us, it tells us this clearly, that Jesus was teaching about the kingdom of God. Verse 6, a question comes forward of, will you at this time restore the kingdom? And if you go back to Acts 28, I want you to see this like bookends here, okay? In Acts 28, the last chapter, last verses of the book of Acts. Verse 23, it says this. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers from morning till evening. This is they came before Paul. And he expounded to them testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus. Okay. So here at the very end of the book, we got Paul teaching and testifying about the kingdom of God. And then look at the very last verse of the book of Acts. Very last verse. Verse 31. We've got Paul here proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So I'm saying this is a legitimate question. It fits into the framework of the whole book of Acts. You have these almost bookends of the talk about the kingdom of God on the front and the kingdom of God on the back end. So this is a question. Are you going to restore the kingdom? Is this the time where you restore the kingdom now? That's the idea. And you could also branch this out. It's even bigger than the book of Acts. You could take it into both volumes, Luke and Acts together. And there's this theme about the kingdom of God that runs all the way through it. I would just commit that to your own study. Or really the whole Bible. You could zoom out to the whole of scriptures and all of history. And there's this theme throughout the book. And we'll look at this more in a minute about the kingdom of God. So this question that they're asking Jesus makes sense about the kingdom of God. Think about it. It makes sense. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's talking to them about this. This thing that's coming is huge. He's going to baptize the church in the Holy Spirit. He's about to pour out the Holy Spirit. Jesus is there in Jerusalem. He's right there. In Luke chapter 22, he said stuff to them like, just as the father has appointed it for me, so I appoint for you a kingdom. You're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the people of Israel. And they're thinking, man, this is the time for that, right? This is the time for that. Jesus is, a, he's, he's risen from the dead. We see him walking. We're in Jerusalem. This is the time that it would come, right? So the question, the question makes sense in light of the context. I want you to see this. Jesus' answer, he does not rebuke their question. He doesn't disregard their question. He doesn't reject their question. But instead, he gives them three, excuse me, three clear points to help them think rightly about their thoughts about the kingdom of God. So in verse 7 and 8, we see three clear points that are going to be given to help them think, help them think rightly about the kingdom of God for which they are concerned. First point that he gives them. Is it time, the times and the seasons of when it's all going to go down? That's none of your business. That's in the Father's hand. He is, the Father has that in His hands. He's already elected when it's going to go down. That's not for you to know times and seasons of when it's all going to culminate and be done. Now that's, unfortunately, a lot of uh, Christians still these days are not getting this. And they're allowing people to do this goofy date setting stuff to lead them astray. So unfortunately, people aren't seeing this. But Jesus says that very clearly. Listen, 
The times and the seasons are not for you to know. So that's point number one. So when they say, will you now restore the kingdom? Or, or will you at this time do it? He says the times and seasons are for you to know, number one. Second point he, he, he uh, highlights here. He reminds them of the scope of the kingdom or the extent of the kingdom of God. It says it in verse 8. He says this. Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So he says, listen, you're asking me about the kingdom. Now, it's not for you to know times and seasons, but look, the Spirit of God is going to come and empower you to be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is an all-nations kingdom. You're asking about, so apostles, you're asking about when I'm going to restore this kingdom to Israel. And I'm reminding you, this is an all-nations kingdom. Every people, tribe, and tongue on the planet type kingdom that we're going after here. Isaiah chapter 49. Let me read this verse to you because it's similar language. Isaiah 49 verse 6. Listen to this. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant. Now in the context, the servant here is the coming Messiah, Jesus. The Son of God incarnate, Jesus. It is too light a thing that you... Christ should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. He says for you to restore Israel and Jacob, that's too light of a thing. What do you mean that's too light of a thing? Listen, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Same phrase. This gospel, what about the kingdom? What about the kingdom, Jesus? What about that kingdom? He says, I'm going to empower you by my spirit to be my witnesses. And here's the scope of the kingdom. Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is lifting up their eyes to see the extent of this kingdom. And in a very real way, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 serves as an outline for the rest of the book of Acts. Think about it. He says, Jerusalem, that's Acts chapters 1 through 7. All Judea and Samaria, read chapter 8 and chapter 9 as the gospel spreads into Judea and Samaria and churches are planted there. And then to the ends of the earth, read chapter 10 and on to the end of the book. It really outlines the book for us. This is what is happening in the book of Acts. The gospel is moving forward. The kingdom is advancing to the ends of the earth, to all nations. Now, so Jesus is dealing with them. He's, He's three clear points. Number one, the times and the seasons. Or not, not for you to know. Number two, the scope of this kingdom you're asking me about is an all nations kingdom. And number three, he begins to tell them the way that this kingdom is going to be advanced. He begins to tell them the, uh, the how. How is this kingdom going to be advanced to the ends of the earth? And, and, and he, he begins to show them that it's not going to happen by military force the way that they've always seen kingdoms advance. But rather it's going to happen by what? Acts 1.8, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. It's happening through my witnesses by the power of my spirit. And here's what I want you to see in this. And I was floored by this, that God does not think like we think. His ways are not our ways. You understand that his thoughts are not our thoughts. We, he thinks, praise God, he thinks so differently than we do. And so when we think about, God, how are you going to advance your kingdom? When these apostles are thinking, how are you going to advance your kingdom? How are you going to do that, God? That Jesus doesn't think the way we think. I was reminded of uh, James and John. Remember uh, James and John? They said, Jesus, you want us to call down fire on these people that rejected you over here? And praise God, Jesus doesn't think like humans. He doesn't think like we think. And he says, no, you don't know what spirit you're of. But what about when Jesus comes to the earth? He comes and he inaugurates the kingdom, okay? The king is standing on the earth. The God man is standing on the earth as king. And there he is and everybody around him, all the people that were his followers, want to take him and make him king right now. Literally try to force him up to, to lead out this revolt against the kingdoms that suppress him. And, and they're going to make him a king right now. But instead, what's your first move, Jesus? First thing you're going to do. The first thing he does is he goes to a cross. He goes to the cross before he takes the crown. He goes to the cross and dies for sinners. He dies for the broken, dies for those who deserve hell forever before he ascends onto his throne. Now why? Isn't that backwards? Doesn't that seem backwards to us? 
Why would you go to this humiliating cross before you go to the crown? And listen, when you think about the advancement of the kingdom, the only thing they've ever seen is the kingdom of, the kingdoms of men advancing by force, by physical force. Raise up a king, raise up an army, and take dominion of other peoples. Subdue their bodies against their will. And what Jesus says here, you think about how glorious this is. I love this. He says, no, you know, here's what I'm actually going to do. I'm going to empower my witnesses, that's you, to go out in this world and you're actually going to suffer and die like I did. It's going to look like you're defeated, like it looked like I was defeated. But in doing that, you're going to preach the gospel and you're going to show the love of Christ through your death. And what I'm going to do is subdue not just the bodies of men unwillingly. I'm going to subdue men's heart from every nation, tribe and tongue on the planet. That's what I'm going to do. He says, he says, here's how I'm going to advance the kingdom. The power of God by the Holy Spirit through my witnesses to all the nations. To all the nations. And so here's how the kingdom's going to advance. It's just going to advance like this. That the people of God go out, show the love of Christ. And the enemies of God, which are us, are going to be brought to Him. But they're going to be subdued in their hearts so that they actually want Him to be the King. The only kind of kingdom subduing we've ever seen is there's groups of people. Think about even, even the Jews right now at this time period are under the Roman Empire. They don't want to be under that king. They don't want to be a part of that empire. But Jesus, through the way he does it, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's actually going to, at the very end, have a group of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue that aren't just subdued under his leadership, but they want to be. I want him to be my king. And then, and only then, he's going to return. And that's when he takes his rod of iron with his armies behind him. And he, and he shatters the knees of those who are still his enemies and sends them to hell forever. Every single enemy will be subdued in the end. And so it's a glorious thing that he's laying out about the way he's going to advance the kingdom. I want you to see this real quick in Psalm 110. I think you get a picture of this in Psalm 110. And I want to say this quickly. If you've never read Psalm 110, this may be a little bit uh, harder to follow, but hear, hear this very quickly. In Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, that's the Father speaking to the Son. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now I can prove from the New Testament that that's talking about the time when Jesus ascends on high. And the father says to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Until I take all of your enemies, Messiah, Christ, Jesus, take all your enemies. I'm going to put them under your feet. Sit right here until I put them all, all your enemies under your feet. And then what you find in the following verses is that Messiah is talked about in three ways. The first way he's talked about is the king that's ruling. He's ruling on his throne right in the midst of his enemies. And then he's talked about number two as a great high priest. And then number three, we get insight in that time when that great ruler, that great high priest is going to come back to this earth. And here's what you see. And it's beautiful in Psalm 110. Verse two says this. This is a picture of the book of Acts of, of Acts starting in Acts 1 8. Verse two says the Lord sends forth from Zion. That's from Jerusalem. Your mighty scepter. That's the Christ who's seated on his throne right now. And he's going to send forth his kingdom. He's going to send forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. And I love that phrase. That God's going to have a people for himself from every nation, tribe, and tongue. That offer themselves to God freely as volunteers and it's going to begin from Jerusalem as the witnesses go out empowered by the Spirit of God. And then in the very end when he returns, that's when we get to verse 5, that last description. And it says, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. That's when he returns. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the whole earth. And so here's this idea that Acts 1-8 is a description from Jesus. The, the question comes, are you going to fulfill the kingdom now? Look, it's not for you to know the times and seasons. Number two, the scope of the kingdom is every nation, tribe, and tongue. And number three, the way I'm going to advance this kingdom first is by subduing the hearts of men through this glorious gospel. Now let's, let's talk for just a minute 
Just a minute before we move to that second point. Let's, let's talk just for a minute about the kingdom of God. I want you to think with me about the kingdom of God. Now this, obviously, the kingdom of God is a theme in Acts. But more than that, it's a, it's, a, it's a theme from Genesis to Revelation. It's a theme of all of history, the eternal purpose of God wrapped up in this phrase, the kingdom of God. And I want you to think about this because this will reorient your life. It will literally simplify your life if you think like this. That your life is really, it's all about, this is what it's all about. It's about two kingdoms warring over the souls of men. Two kingdoms. Notice all these little sub-kingdoms all around, that's fine. But there's mainly two kingdoms warring over the souls of men. Now this Luke, I want to read this to you from Luke chapter 11. In his first volume, Luke says this in Luke chapter 11. They've already come to Jesus Two kingdoms warring over the souls of men. They, they've already, they come to Jesus. They say, Jesus, you're just casting out demons by the power of Satan himself. So they're blaspheming Christ here. Jesus says this in verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself... How will his kingdom stand? There's one kingdom. I said this will simplify your life. Two kingdoms warring over the souls of men. That just said Satan. How will his kingdom stand? Satan has a kingdom. For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So now you've got the kingdom of Satan and you've got the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Verse 21, and I love this. Jesus gives this description of what's really going down. This is what it's all about. Simplify your life here. Look right here in verse 21. When a strong man... Fully armed, guards his own palace. His goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. And I love that picture. This will simplify your life. Two kingdoms warring over the souls of men. And it's not that Satan's kingdom is in any way comparable to the kingdom of God or to Christ himself. But here's the picture. That Satan is the strong man trying to guard his stuff in the kingdom of darkness. But Christ is the stronger than he that attacks and overcomes, whips him and takes his stuff away. Colossians 1.13 gives a description of that. It says that we have been delivered from the domain or kingdom of darkness. And we've been translated into the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So there's a kingdom transfer that happens. And if you think like that, two kingdoms warring over the souls of men. And one will most definitely be victorious. Doesn't that simplify your life? And it simplify your life? And what you're going after? So this kingdom, I want you to think about these questions. How will this king, King Jesus and his kingdom, how will he advance his kingdom into the kingdom of darkness? How will he do that? Okay. Or let, me, let me ask it another way. How is the stronger man attacking and overcoming and taking away the spoils from the strong man? How's he doing that? Or let me ask it one other way. How is King Jesus infiltrating the kingdom of darkness to take those citizens of that dark kingdom and make them kingdom, citizens of his own precious kingdom? How is he doing that? And Acts 1.8 tells us that. So listen to it because you want to be a part of it. It simplifies your life. Acts 1.8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come on you and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. It's through His witnesses. It's by, empowered by His Spirit. Through His witnesses is the way that He's doing that. And so Acts then, it pictures the Christian life like this. We are citizens of an, another world somewhere. We're citizens of, of uh, another uh, uh, otherworldly kingdom. That's what we're citizens of. Think about what that means. This is not your home. This is not it. This is not where you dwell. But you live here. But here's the thing. You're citizens of another kingdom, but you don't just live in this kingdom. You don't just live in this dark world. 
But you are to advance the kingdom here. That means on the offense. That means the Christian life is a war. So you living in this dark world as a citizen of another kingdom is not just to live here until the time is up. You live here and life is a battle. It's a fight to advance the kingdom of light into the kingdom of darkness. By his witnesses, empowered by his spirit. So let me just ask this question in closing this point. Is your life marked by an obsession with kingdom advancement? Is your life marked by an obsession with kingdom advancement? Preach the gospel. Make disciples. Raise up more soldiers. Send out battalions to the ends of the earth that preach Christ and win people in the lost and dark world. Is your life marked by an obsession with this kingdom advancement? And if not... I want to encourage you. It's not an option. It's not an option. Jesus said in Matthew 28, he commanded us, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. So this is not an optional part of the Christian walk. You are on this planet right now and not in heaven with Christ. You're here. Why? To advance the kingdom of God in this place. So what hinders you? Is there anything that hinders you from being obsessed with and leaned into this kingdom advancing Mindset. Let's go to that second point. Verse 9 through 11. We're going to see the king. The king of the kingdom. The king of the kingdom. Because we're going to see him as the king. Ascending. Ascending to his throne. Acts chapter 1. Let's read verse 9 through 11. Together. Look at verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now think about what they just saw. Can, can you let your mind go there for a minute? The one that they love. The one that they adore. He's ma- the man. Is, he is the man. He's right there. And this man. His feet lift up off the ground. And he ascends. And they're watching it. Can you imagine this? And they watch him ascend. Into a cloud. Until he's eventually out of their sight. He's taken up from them. So don't just read past this. We just tend to just read past them so fast. But can you imagine what they saw right here? So the question is, who is this man? Who is this man that just, his feet lifted up off the ground. He ascended into heaven. They couldn't see him anymore. Who is this man? He's the focal point of the kingdom. He is Jesus Christ, the king. He's the king. And so what I want us to do is I want us to just boast together for a minute. You know what it means to boast in Christ? I just want us to boast together in Christ, this king and who he's revealed to be in his word. He's certainly the king. There's no doubt about that. Later on, let me read this to you. You don't have to flip there, but in Revelation chapter 19, he's called the king of kings. But let me start a little bit before that. Revelation 19 verse 11. Boast in Christ with me. Then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And by and the name by which he is called is the word of God and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Now this is, this is zooming into those last days when he's going to return and rule his enemies with a rod of iron. But do you see this? He is King of Kings. He's Lord of Lords. He's certainly the king that we see in Acts 1 ascending to his throne. He's the eternal king. He's the eternal king. Before he was even born, Micah had this to say about him. 
In Micah chapter 5, in verse 2, Micah says this. But you, O Bethlehem, which is where Jesus was born, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, Bethlehem, shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from of ancient days. So here's this one that's coming through Bethlehem that's going to be the ruler of the king, and his coming forth is from ancient days. He's the eternal king of glory. Jesus is the king prophesied about all through the Old Testament. Literally all through that. And I want you to notice, as you think about these prophecies of the coming Messiah, notice the focus on the, the king or the ruler or this kingdom type language all the way through these prophecies. Think about what the first book of the Bible says about Jesus. Genesis 3.15 says he's going to come and crush the head of Satan, the ruler of the other kingdom. He's going to crush his head. In Genesis 12, 3, it says this one that's coming to crush his head is going to bless all nations. This is every nation, tribe, and tongue. There's going to be a kingdom. There's his kingdom from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And it goes on in Genesis 49 and verse 8 to say this. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Think about Judah. You got the promises given to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob and then Jacob to Judah. And Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. The scepter. Think about the scepter. A king is coming from Judah. A king is coming from Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So here's this idea that there's one coming that's going to be ruler. He's going to be king and he's going to have the scepter forever. And he's coming through the line of Judah. You hear this kingdom language. What about Numbers? Let me go to Numbers 24. We got another prophecy about that coming Messiah. Notice the kingdom language. Numbers 24 verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. And a scepter, there's that kingdom language again. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. Break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob, one from Jacob, shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and 13. One that came through the line of Judah, who was promised, named David. He comes and God says to David, David, your offspring is coming after you and I'm going to establish his kingdom forever. He will be a king sitting on your throne forever and ever. This is the king that's been talked about, prophesied about all through the Old Testament. Let me give you just a few more. Psalm 22 is a really popular psalm. This speaks about Jesus' death and his resurrection. So many people know about this psalm as a psalm that says they pierced his hands and his feet. They pierced his hands and his feet. Remember that? Speaking about the cross is coming. And so many people know that part of that psalm. But you do, do you know this part? After he rises from the dead, listen to what it says about the coming Christ. Verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. That's the one who died and is risen. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. And you could go on and on. The popular verses you know, Isaiah 7, 14, that a child will be born from a virgin and call him Emmanuel, which is God with us. So he's a human born of a virgin, but he's God. He's God with us. You know that verse, right? And you know Isaiah 9, verse 6, where it says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. But listen, do you remember this part? And the government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He'll sit on the throne of David, ruling all nations. This is what it consistently says about this Christ, this promise to come. And you could go, as I said, you could go on and on. Ze Zechariah 9, 9 speaks about your king is coming to you, riding on a donkey. And he will, he will rule all nations, all nations. 
So this king is talked about. Jesus is the king prophesied of in the Old Testament. He's also the incarnate king. I want you to think about Jesus, the incarnate king. Here's what I mean. God is Trinity, right? He's a Trinity. So you're thinking about God, God. Who are you? The one that rose from the dead said that this book tells me who you are. So God, I want to know who you are. Who are you, God? And you begin to study the word of God and you find out the father. Yeah, that's him. He's God. And you find out the son. Yeah, the son, he is God. And you find out the Holy Spirit. And he's spoken about in the scriptures. The Holy Spirit is God. And so you think, okay, there's three gods here, right? But over and over again, it says, no, there's one God, one God, one God. So the Trinity is glorious and beautiful. Three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And these three are not three gods, but they're one God. It's a glorious thing. And then the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, actually takes on flesh so that he is fully God, fully man. That baby that was laying in the manger, that baby laid in the manger, fully God and fully man. Not half God, half man, but fully God, fully man. Think about this Christ. He's the incarnate, the incarnate king. And so he comes in the flesh so that he can die. And he dies for sinners crucified in our place. He rises from the dead. And he says in Matthew 28, verse 18, think about it. he's risen from the dead. And he says this, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. That sounds like kingdom language. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And you think, wait a minute, Jesus. You're the son of God from all of eternity. Haven't you always had all authority on heaven and earth? So how are you saying all authority in heaven and earth has been given to you? Because now he's a man. A man has all authority in heaven and on earth. A man, fully man, fully God. Sure, no doubt. But a man can now say, I am the king over all the universe. This is Jesus. And then he ascends on high because his, if you think about his incarnation, his incarnation was not temporary. He didn't just become flesh for a short time and ascend on high. And now he's fully God again. He's not man. He takes his incarnation with him into all of eternity. So in Acts chapter one, what are we seeing? In Acts chapter one, we're seeing the fully God, fully man. And he is rising and ascending into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So he ascends and they're gazing at him. You imagine once Jesus got outside of their sight and they could see him, he, he entered into the cloud and they could see him no more. What does the heaven of heaven see? What does the heaven of heaven see as this one ascends up to his throne? What does what do they see on the other side? And Daniel tells us this in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter seven. Listen to this. Beautiful. Daniel 7 says, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, I guess the same clouds that took him up with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. He came to the ancient of days, one like the son of man. Who is this man? He comes to the ancient of days. And he was presented before him. Jesus is escorted by angels before God the Father. And listen, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and tongues should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And we know from Psalm 110 that the father says, sit in my right hand till I put all your enemies under your feet. So you imagine that Jesus is looking at his disciples on earth and he says, listen, he says, listen, you're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit when I pour them out on you. To be my witnesses, to spread this kingdom to all nations, to the ends of the earth. And then he ascends on high and he's given the kingdom to the, to the, the ends of the earth. The all nations kingdom is granted to him. It's beautiful. And so there we see him. He's reigning on his throne in the book of Acts. He's reigning on his throne. Even today, his enemies are being put under his Feet until you get to Acts chapter one, verse 11. And it says this Jesus will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, 
All his enemies, like us, are being put under his feet through the gospel. And one day he's going to return. As it says here in Acts 1.11, he's going to return and he's going to put the rest of his enemies under his feet. Only this time, not through the gospel. Not through the gospel. And so Acts chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, it's a glorious, it's the ascension of the king. Ascension of the king to his throne. And Christians are called to be what? To be witnesses to this king. Acts 1.8 says we are witnesses to this king. So I want you to think about this with me for a minute. To be a faithful witness to this king, you got to know him. You got to know this king in order to be a faithful witness to this king. So, so I want to just pose this question, brothers and sisters. Are you longing for more knowledge of the king? Are you increasing in your knowledge of the king? 2 Peter 3.18 is a command. He says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you longing to know him more and more? Is your life pictured as gazing upon Christ, looking upon him? I want to know him because I'm called to be a witness to him in this dark world. I love the picture of these apostles, of these disciples here. And they're gazing they're just mesmerized by this king. They just saw him lifted up and they're, they're mesmerized by it. I love that picture. I think it speaks to what we ought to do while we walk on this earth. Now I realize that they're being corrected there, right? They're kind of in a roundabout way corrected as the angel said, why are you still gazing up into heaven? Why are you doing that? In other words, get busy about what he told you to do. But listen, that's because we're not to look physically with our physical eyes, but we're to gaze upon Christ like they were, except with our spiritual eyes. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, run with endurance a race set before you, looking unto Jesus, looking at him and looking at him and looking at him through his word, taking the word of God and saying, I want to know him. I want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, my king, that I might be a witness for him. Is your life marked by that? Now, the king will advance his kingdom. There's no doubt about it to every people group on the earth. And that's what we're seeing unfold in Acts. So here's the question now. This king, to whom we are witnesses, we know he promises from the Old Testament all the way through that his all nations bride, his all nations kingdom will come to pass. So he is going to advance his kingdom. We know that for sure. The question is how? How is he going to do that? And it says in Acts 1, it says by his spirit. And in fact, I want to read one other verse to you in Acts chapter 2. Wraps a little more detail on this. Acts chapter 2. Verse 32. Listen. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. So we just saw that. He ascends on high. Exalted at the right hand of God. Sit at my right hand until your enemies are made your footstool, says the Father. And listen to this phrase. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Jesus, what does He do? He sends on high, sits on His throne. He receives of the Father the promised Holy Spirit. And how is He going to ensure that the blood of Christ is not wasted? How is He going to ensure? How is He going to ensure this kingdom advances to the end of the earth? He's going to pour out the Holy Spirit on His church. So what we see here is the Holy Spirit is how He's going to do it. The Holy Spirit is the kingdom. He's the King Exalter, and He's the Kingdom Advancer. So Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, a promise of a baptism of the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, we, we hear that, that word again. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Holy Spirit is a king exalter. If you go read John chapter 14 through 16, it said about the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, he, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, Jesus, because he'll take of what is mine and he'll declare it to you. So he's a king Exalter. He's a kingdom advancer. We saw that not only in Acts 1-8, but we saw it also in Luke 24, right? He says repentance and remission of sins will be preached beginning in Jerusalem to all nations. But here's what I want you to do. Wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. 
Do you clothe with power from on high by the Holy Spirit? So the, the apostles asked about the kingdom. You know, the kingdom, is it going to be restored now? How's it going to be advanced? It's going to be advanced to the end of the earth. But what, what, if, what if Jesus would have just said, what if um, in this question about the, the fulfillment of the kingdom, what if Jesus would have only said, hey, here's my answer. You're going to be my witnesses. What if that's all he would have said, left out the spirit of God? Could the task be done? This all nations task. Would we have the boldness to preach God's word, to go into dangerous lands with the gospel? Could we do that? Could we open blind eyes, blind spiritual eyes? Could we, uh, like Lydia's heart was open to receive the things spoken? Can we do that? And the answer is no, no, and no. So we need the Holy Spirit. So he didn't just say you're my witnesses. He said you're my witnesses that will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. So let's take just a minute to boast together in the Holy Spirit. Let's boast together in the Holy Spirit. So who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? Let me tell you what he's not. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. He's not just a, a, an impersonal power. He's not like some you know, Jedi force, something like that. He's none of that. He's not just an influence. He is a person. The Bible does not refer to the Holy Spirit as an it, but as a he. When he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will teach you concerning all things. He, the Holy Spirit, he is a person. He's the third person of the one triune God. He's fully God. Creator God. Glorious God is the Holy Spirit. The scripture says that the Holy Spirit loves. Romans 15, 30 talks about the love of the Spirit. The scripture says that the Holy Spirit speaks. 1 Timothy 4, 1 says the Spirit expressly says. The scripture says that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit can be grieved or saddened. In Ephesians 4.30, he says, do not grieve, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do you think of the Spirit of God like that? He's glorious. None of us adore Him and worship Him as He deserves to be adored and worshipped. None of us love the Holy Spirit as He deserves to be loved. Most people think about the Holy Spirit as He just got to start in the book of Acts or something. But go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. He's in the second verse. Chapter 1 says, in the beginning, God. Chapter 2 says, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. The Spirit of God is in the second verse of the Bible. He's to be loved, adored, praised. He's been revealing Christ, saving souls, writing scriptures from the very beginning. He's been slandered. The Holy Spirit has been slandered in various ways. Even ways that could be considered, considered opposite ditches. He's been slandered by those who ignore him. They want nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. And he's been slandered by those who attribute weird things to him that are, should not be attributed to him. But he ought to be glorified. Has the Holy Spirit been slandered in your mind? Or do you see him as God Almighty? As the glorious one that is to be worshipped? How do you view the Holy Spirit in your heart? And one of the major functions... One of the major functions of the Holy Spirit is seen right here in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So here's this all nations kingdom advancing mission is happening. And here's a major function, major function of the Spirit of God is to make sure the blood of Christ isn't wasted. It makes it to the ends of the earth. Now I want you to see that as a pattern. So Acts 1, 8, I know you see it there. The Holy Spirit comes upon you. Be my witness. I know you see it there. The Holy Spirit for the empowerment of ministry. But I want you to see this as a pattern. Because literally throughout the whole Bible, especially in the book of Acts, there's this pattern that the Spirit of God comes on them. And, and what do they do? What do they do? They open their mouth and the Word of God is proclaimed and souls are saved. So I want you to see it that way. So not only Acts 1.8, but think about Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit is poured out. He falls. And what happens? These people begin to open their mouth and preach the glorious praises of God. People gather up. Peter stands up, preaches the gospel, and 3,000 souls are saved that day. Or think about Acts chapter 4, verse 8 through 12. I read this one just a couple of days ago. Then Peter, listen, filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's this man, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And you've got the coward Peter who was scared to death of a little girl as Christ was going to the cross. And he's scared and he's denying Christ. And But now he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And what is he doing now? He's looking at the rulers of the day and he's saying, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth whom you crucified, he's calling them out. Whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By Him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. Bill, did you see the boldness there? That the Spirit of God's producing in Him? What about, go to chapter 4, Acts 4, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Are you seeing the pattern? Filled with the Spirit, preaching the the gospel with boldness. We could go on and on. Let me give you one more. Acts 6, 5. It describes Stephen in Acts 6, 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So here's this man described. Here... And in Acts chapter 7, he's described as a man full of the Holy Spirit. And what does he do? He opens his mouth and proclaims the gospel. And it says in verse 10, But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. You get in Acts 7, he preaches the gospel. And they begin to shove their fingers in their ears and scream. They don't want to hear no more. Their ears cannot take the speaking that's empowered by the Spirit of God. This is the pattern all the way through. You could go on and on. You could go to Acts 9 and what you see in Paul's life. And, and Acts 13, when the Spirit of God moves in the church at Antioch, what's the result? The gospel goes to unreached people groups. You could go on and on. I want you to see this in your own study at another time. That there's a pattern that the fullness of the Holy Spirit, when the, when the Spirit of God comes on someone in the Gospels, in the Old Testament, in Acts, it produces this pattern of a proclamation of the Word of God. With boldness. And souls are saved. So here's the question. How do, we, how do we respond to all that? Everything we're talking about. How do we respond? I'll give you three quick responses. How do we respond to all that? Number one. We got to get busy. Okay. We got to get busy advancing the kingdom of God. Think about it. He sent his spirit for the advancement of the kingdom. If someone gave you a million dollars to start an orphanage and they looked up and there was no orphanage and you're living in luxury, some may write. He's given you more than a million dollars. He's given you himself. So therefore, I think the response must be get busy advancing the kingdom of God. Christ sent his spirit not to make you a Sunday schooler, but to make you a soldier of the cross. He didn't send the Spirit to make you a cold theologian, but to make you a fiery evangelist. He didn't send the Spirit to make you weird, but to make you a warrior with the Word of God into all the world. This is why He came. Get busy advancing His kingdom. Number two, trust the Spirit to use you. Trust the Spirit of God. Here's the reality. The brakes were put on these apostles. They're told to wait in Jerusalem... Until God does this catastrophic thing He does where Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit on His church. So they're waiting in Jerusalem. Listen to me. We're not waiting. As you continue to read through the book of Acts and you see the, the Spirit of God is now poured out. When those, those who confess Christ, those who believe in Him, repent of sin and put their hope in Him, they are sealed by the Spirit of God in that moment. Ephesians 1 verse 13. It says, In Him you also trusted. In whom also, Jesus, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit. The moment you believe. So here's what I'm saying. You're not waiting around like they are in Jerusalem. This event, this amazing event has already happened. God has poured out His Spirit and those who put their hope in Him are sealed by the Spirit of God. Therefore, do what? Go and trust Him. You say, I don't feel like I'm full of the Spirit of God. Trust Him. If you're in Christ, His Spirit dwells in you. Trust Him and preach the gospel. Trust Him. Make disciples. Trust Him. Send out missionaries and be sent. Trust Him and do this. Because you know that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Let me, let me encourage you with this verse. In John chapter 7. 
I encourage you to lean against this verse of scripture, to lean against it and go. Lean against it and go. John chapter 7, verse 38. Listen to this. Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Think about that. Rivers of water, life. Rivers of life flowing out of you. That's the picture here. Can you see that visual? Rivers of life flowing out of you who believe in Christ. You say, why are you bringing up this verse? Look at the next verse. It explains it. Now this he said about the Spirit. Whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Spirit whom those believe in Him were to receive. Have you believed in Christ? Is your hope truly in Christ? Are you converted to Him? That means you have received the Spirit of God. That means rivers of living water flowing out of you. Trust Him. Again, you say, I don't feel like that. I'm hindered for some reason. Don't worry about all that. Trust what God says. And we say, Lord, you said that rivers of living water, I'm going to go preach your gospel, make disciples, advance your kingdom, and trust that you use me for your namesake. Trust Him. Third and final, I want to encourage you to pray for more manifestations of the Spirit of God in your life. Pray for more of that in your life. More of the Spirit of God in your life. So don't you think about this. We read through the, those verses in Acts. And these people that were, they were sealed with the Holy Spirit here, it says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and preached the word of bonus. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and preached the word of bonus over and over again. Have, have you allowed, have you allowed, answer this question, have you allowed misrepresentations of the Spirit of God to steal away from you this kind of praying? Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come and help us and empower us and fill us with your spirit for the glory of your name among all nations. Have you lost that prayer because some people have misused it? Listen to Luke chapter 11, verse 13. Jesus says, Jesus says, if you be an evil, if you be an evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more? Will your Father in Heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of Him. So can I encourage you to pray that prayer? Say, God, please, give us an outpouring of your Spirit in my life, in this place, for the glory of your holy name. So I encourage you in those ways. And let me just close with this. When you think about us as a church... You know, a lot of these are individual responses. When you think about us as a church, I was reading this biography uh, from Charles Spurgeon. And I want to read something to you and I want to encourage you. I was encouraged. My soul was moved by it. I want you to be moved by it too. And I'll just close with this. You know, the, the Metropolitan Tabernacle was the, what they called the church where he was a pastor there. Okay, it was in the mid-1800s. And man, this, if you read the biography, this... This uh, church was known to send out missionaries all across the globe. That many souls were being saved. That people were coming to Christ. That the, the most wretched of sinners were being converted. It's a glorious thing that God did in this church. And the, the, question, you know, the question I ask is why? Why did God do this in this church? Or how did it happen in this church? And listen to this. This is from the first sermon that Spurgeon preached in the Metropolitan Tabernacle. This is from the first sermon. It's a little piece of it from the first sermon. Listen to this. And I wonder if you cry out to God for Grace Community Church like this. Listen. Let God send the fire of His Spirit here. Let God send the fire of His Spirit here. And the minister will be more and more lost in the Master. You will come to think less of the speaker and more of the truth spoken. Suppose the fire should come here. He's talking about the fire of the Spirit, as he just said. Suppose the fire should come here. And the master be seen more than the minister. What then? Why, this church will become two, three, and four thousand strong. We shall have the lecture hall beneath this platform crowded at each prayer meeting. 
And we shall see in this place young men devoting themselves to God. We shall find ministers raised up and trained and sent forth to carry the sacred fire to other parts of the globe. If God shall bless us, He'll make us a blessing to multitudes of others. So here he is asking for the Spirit of God to come. And I think he understands the reason, the the function that the Spirit holds to advance his kingdom. Let God but send down the fire and the biggest sinners in the neighborhood will be converted. Those who live in dens of infamy will be changed. The drunkard will forsake his cup. The swearer will repent of his blasphemy. The The debauch will leave their lust. Dry bones be raised up and clothed afresh and hearts of stone be turned to flesh. So a question is, why did God think about us as a church? And we're looking at this example. Why did God put his hand on the Metropolitan Tabernacle like he did? Is it because of all the abilities of Charles Spurgeon? Is that why? Or could it be that he and other people like him were praying things like this? God, let your spirit come. These souls might be saved. The people might be sent across the globe for your glory. And so when's the last time that you prayed for Grace Community Church like that? Let's pray like that now. God, I pray that in this church, Lord, according to your mercy, according to your love, According to your sovereign power, that you would send the fire of your spirit on this church. God, that you would help us, Lord. You said, how much more would you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask you? So God, we're asking that you would strengthen us, God, and make us a people filled with your spirit for the proclamation of your word. God, fill us with boldness to preach your word. Fill us with motivation and passion and zeal to preach your word. God, use us to win the loss of you. God, I pray that you bring in the the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners, God. Bring them into your kingdom. God, take your gospel to unreached people groups through this church, God, by the power of your spirit. God, help us to live out these words that we've read today. Make us obsessed with the advancement of your kingdom to the ends of the earth. God, help us to know the King. You, King Jesus, help us to know you in deeper ways than we ever have before. And Lord, we trust you that you would use us by your spirit. Thank you, Father, for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.